This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. I think as far as 2024 goes, I think the women voters are going to be very, very critical, very suspect, late deciders. And I really hope candidates are listening and not just talking at them. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. This Smart Women Smart Power episode is supported by Tallis. As we begin to gear up for a big election year next year, I am delighted to be joined by Ashley O'Connor, a fellow Annapolitan and a leader in political advertising and communications. Ashley is currently a managing partner at Strategic Partners in Media and has previously held numerous roles in some big presidential elections. Welcome, Ashley. The world of campaigning is so unique, so fast-paced. You work extremely wild hours, got to be a roller coaster of emotions. What drew you to this world? Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I sort of happenstance and a little bit of luck is how I ended up in this world. Yeah. I went to a very liberal women's college in New England, Mount Holyoke. And I was pre-med with no intention of going into the sciences or going to med school or anything. I just liked. You just liked the science. I liked the sciences. And I had a job at the Career Resource Center my Mm -hmm. senior year. And as I was working there, a Republican political consultant called Mount Holyoke and said, my wife is an alum. I'd really like to hire a young woman from Mount Holyoke. And the Career Resource Center said, oh, we have one Republican. Her name is her name is Ashley. And so I flew down and I interviewed and I thought, well, this sounds like fun. I was mm-hmm. always interested in politics, always up on current events. Mm-hmm. So I just sort of jumped in with both feet. Wow. Isn't that a funny beginning? Wow. And you happen to be in the Career Center at that particular moment. It's so funny how the universe sort of works. Completely. Completely. Though I will say, when Grey's Anatomy came out, I was like, oh, maybe I should have gone to med school. That looks really fun. (laughs) But no, I've I've enjoyed my career the whole way. Mm -hmm. So what was the first campaign that you worked on? Gosh, when I first started at this political advertising agency, they were doing Bob Dole's presidential. Oh, wow. And it was his primary. Mm -hmm. And I was very entry level. I was just Mm -hmm. making sure everybody was getting their messages and what was, you know, just running mail around, very entry level. But pretty quickly, the firm decided to move me to New York and work in their production advertising arm. And I think because my background in the sciences, I was very Mm -hmm. organized and sort of understood, like, here are the processes that need to be put in place to yield the outcome. And so I brought a little bit of sanity to what was more creative and chaotic. And I fell in love with New York City. 
I fell in love with advertising and I decided mm-hmm. to stay. And I worked at a little production company in Soho mm-hmm. and worked on things like Dr. Scholes and Elizabeth Arden and oh, wow. got a tremendous amount of experience, but missed politics. Right. I felt like what I was doing in advertising didn't matter as much compared to when I was working in political advertising. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that was the moment I said, okay, I'm going to focus in political advertising mm-hmm. and I am going to work to be the most kind of creative and efficient and effective producer while working in the limitations of political budgets and the very fast timeline that is politics. Yeah. Well, and the world of political advertising and communications has changed immensely since that time when you started with Bob Dole. And you're the director of production for Bush Cheney. And even since, you know, you're the director of advertising in Mitt Romney's campaign for presidency. I guess my overall question is, how have you seen the political landscape changing? Well, I would say over the last 25 years, I think technology is the biggest disruptor to Mm -hmm. it. It used to be when I first started in political advertising, cameras, editing, all of these things were huge investments and very specialized. And so you'd build relationships with the film community and the you know, post-production world mm-hmm. and work with those vendors. Sure. And over time, you know, so from 2004 for Bush Cheney's reelect, I was on staff. I worked directly for Mark McKinnon. He mm-hmm. was fantastic. He gave me a thousand and one opportunities. And I had a team of Republican advertising specialists And they were all around the country and everything just moved slower. I mean, we'd literally have like things on DVDs and VHS tapes so people could see things and get approved. Kids, DVDs were these discs. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I can remember like standing on a corner, like handing on VHS tapes so they could go to, you know, different people to get approved. And then flash forward less than 10 years later, by the time Romney came around, we built our edit studio in-house at the Romney campaign. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so much of that is the barrier of entry got so much lower. You know, yeah. Apple came out with great software, great hardware. You mm-hmm. could build an edit studio for, you know, then $50,000 as opposed to, you know, half yeah. a million. Same thing with filming. Mm-hmm. You know, the cameras that just became HD came on the scene. You could get better images. Everything just sort of changed. Mm-hmm. And you're constantly kind of learning and sort of making sure you're staying in touch with creatives that are doing this full time on a far bigger scale and then mm-hmm. kind of gleaming their expertise when you can and applying it to campaigns. Mm-hmm. How has social media changed the political advertising landscape? So what's in my mind is the last Biden-Trump election. And there was so much chatter on social media and so much buzzings and, and negative buzz about President Biden, as I recall. And as I recall, the Biden team said, What's on Twitter doesn't matter. We just need to focus on the ground game. And it turns out they were right. But but that's been an interesting question to me because so much of our discourse is dominated by what's on social media. So how do you say that space? Yeah, I think that there's sort of different channels for different reasons, right? Mm-hmm. I agree. I mean, Twitter, you're sort of talking to this very small universe. Yeah. You know, most of them already know how they're going to vote. Right. You know, then you go to Facebook and you can engage more. You can engage kind of one to one. And I think there's so many opportunities to go direct to voters. You know, Mm -hmm. you can do Facebook Live. You can stream events. I mean, that has really been a big change 
in the last couple of years. And it just allows you to get your message out. I also think that COVID kind of shifted things as well. People became very comfortable seeing lower production value during COVID. I think we were all on Zooms. And for a little while, you know, people were making ads over Zoom. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't have that exact polish that, you know, sort of a higher production value would bring. And I think that it just made people in general a little more comfortable with a lower production value. That combined with things like Instagram Reels and Facebook Live, it just sort of shifted the landscape a little bit. So mm-hmm. it's a little more forgiving. I mean, I've filmed hmm. political ads on on an iPhone before. Wow. Yeah. I mean, they're pretty good quality. (laughs) They're pretty good quality. You know, and there's tons of, you know, sort of bells and whistles that you can add that really make a big difference. Mm -hmm. But it's just to say that the landscape has changed so much. And I think so much of it has to do with both technology and how you're putting your message out and really how voters are consuming information. Mm -hmm. The wonderful thing about social media and the digital landscape is you can do so much more targeting. Yeah. It's not like put it up on the nightly news and, you know, lots of eyeballs see it and hopefully people are paying attention. It's much Mm -hmm. more targeted now. Mm -hmm. I'm curious your views on the evolution of political campaigns overall and their connections with the American people over the course of your career. What are you seeing or what's your impressions of what's changed, what's stayed the same? Gosh, that's a great question. I haven't really thought too much about that. I would say, look, I think good campaigns still have a few things in common. Strong candidates, message discipline, and financial discipline. And that's still the fundamental of good campaigns. I think it's easier for people to break out and catch that quick news cycle now. But is that really a foundation for a long campaign? And look, you can see people that have peaked early and, you know, petered out because they didn't have much to support it. You've seen people kind of lay the groundwork and work diligently and build at the end. I mean, it's all ever changing. And I think that's one of the things I like so much about the industry. You know, I, I say when folks come to interview, if you want the kind of job where every day you know what you're going to do and you know what the barometer yeah. is of mm-hmm. success on a day in and day out basis, this is not it. <laughs> Run screaming. Yes. It's not going to work out. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be nimble. You have to be able Mm -hmm. to react. You have to be able to figure out what is my goal in this scenario. Right. And yeah, it keeps it exciting. For sure. Well, so to turn to the decision that you brought to us to discuss today, Mm -hmm. which is fascinating, which is all your years of experience on the campaign trail, you decided we need to invest time in understanding the, the women voter. What led you to that conclusion that we need to focus more on women voters? Sure. Well, to answer that, I'll have to take a half a step back. When I went to join the Romney team, I was very much used to being the only woman in the room when it came to campaign work. And when I joined Romney, not only were there incredibly smart women in leadership positions at the Romney campaign, Beth Myers, who was Romney's chief of staff when he was governor Mm -hmm. and his campaign manager in 2008. For this 2012 campaign, she was part of the strategy team. So I had the opportunity to have a woman who had more experience than I did and really get to work closely and learn from her. And it was really a fantastic experience that I didn't really know I needed until I had it. Isn't it funny how that happens? You know, we grow up in these fields that are so male dominated and then we meet each other and are like, oh, 
It's like, like a relief. Exactly. Like, oh, there's others. There's others. We can do this. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there was an opportunity. There was a big retreat for significant Romney donors. And the strategy team and everybody from the campaign was coming out and doing presentation and came to discussion point of who was going to present on advertising. And mm-hmm. Beth was like, Ashley is. And I was like, I am. She was like, of course, you know this inside and out. And I was thinking, yeah, of course I do. I yeah. do. I live yeah. and breathe this. I know mm-hmm. absolutely everything. And it was a really great moment that I really don't know if I would have had the opportunity to do had a woman not spoken up for me. Wow. Yeah. So that's this formative moment of empowerment then leads you to thinking much more clearly or in a more targeted way about women voters? Well, in 2012, we thought really the key to Romney winning was going to be that sort of independent, soft Republican, soft Democrat, independent women voters. Mm -hmm. And we'd Mm -hmm. spent a tremendous amount of time doing focus groups and focusing on messaging directly to them. And so we'd learned a ton. And I felt like when the campaign was over, I looked around the room and I looked at all my male colleagues and I thought, no one is going to care about this as much as I am. And this is such a critical point for Republican campaigns. And that's when I made the decision to focus on this and say women voters, specifically soft Republicans, soft Democrat, independent, this is an incredibly important group to win Republican elections. And that's what I decided to focus on. And I decided to study where women voters are getting all of their information study how Madison Avenue advertises to these women. How do people with far deeper pockets really engage? What do they know? You know, study how women make decisions, look at voting trends. And I really just immersed myself in this and genuinely fascinated me. And that's how I carried it on. And through that, I found other women that do polling and research and focus groups. And I'd say, here are some of my concerns with the way Republicans are doing focus groups with women voters. Mm -hmm. You know, what do you think? Could we try something differently? Let me tell you what I've learned over the years. And Mm -hmm. we've been able to kind of pull together some really unique ways of uncovering what undecided women voters think and when their decisions are being made and why. Could you share with us some of your findings? Sure. A couple different things that is sort of anecdotal, but interesting nonetheless, I think. You know, in politics, you pull together your focus groups and you have a moderator go in. And in this case, you know, you'd have 10 women in the room and you'd ask them a bunch of questions and then you'd leave, analyze it and make very big decisions based off what they'd share. Having a woman as the moderator is crucial and not always the case. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I thought, you know, I'm going to start planting a flag. Like Mm -hmm. I want a female moderator. Secondly, what I learned is, you know, women hadn't thought about any of these issues. This is why they're undecided. This is why they're soft Republicans or soft Democrats, because this isn't their daily life. So you bring them into a room. Mm -hmm. You ask them these questions. They'll answer. But then they actually leave the room and they research and they talk to their friends and they talk to their colleagues. And if you stay in touch with those women five days later and engage them, they have totally different points of view. That is fascinating. Mm -hmm. So do you have any hypotheses on why women don't have that exposure to the issues or aren't walking in the door as knowledgeable as they are five days from the conversation? Well, I think the inherent is the screening because we're looking for people, we're looking for women who are undecided. 
And so we sort of take this undecided voter, pepper them with questions. She answers them. And we think, okay, we know everything, but we're not thinking about how her brain works and how she's processing information because she's leaving thinking, huh, I didn't know, you know, there were that many tax increases in the state of Maryland over the last year. What was there really? And then Mm -hmm. she Googles it and then she talks to her colleagues and then she thinks, you know what? That's way too – you know what? I I do think we need to make sure we're not overtaxed. Interesting. But that's not what you heard the day of. Interesting. Yeah. That is really interesting. Yeah, it's been fascinating. So it's a longer game. It's a much longer game. And it's a longer game that involves listening. And in Republican politics and in my industry, I think that people are very quick to know what needs to be done and very quick to tell you how things should be done. And for this group of voters, you have to listen. And that's another thing that came out of my time at the Romney campaign and sort of honing in on this with researchers is put together a panel of women and stay in touch and dialogue with them and listen to them because you'll understand what's influencing them. You know, where are they getting their information? What are they fact checking and why? What's catching their attention and making an impact? And listening to all of that is so critical, especially when these women are not making up their mind to the very end. That's interesting. So it's a longer term conversation. It's an empathetic engagement. It's over time. And yeah, they're going to make the decision once they have the facts or it's time to make the decision. Yep. That's so interesting. So looking forward to 2024, what sorts of trends are you noticing or themes that are resonating with this group of women voters? Well, I think understanding their decision-making will be critical Mm -hmm. in 2024. I worked on a campaign where if you asked what their top four issues were, so you're just looking at women, right? Mm -hmm. So you break out the polls, you're just looking at women, and they say it's economy, crime, abortion, and democracy, top four. If you couple them and say, okay, crime and economy, abortion and democracy – What are you voting on? Dead even. And so you realize what's motivating women to vote. Mm -hmm. Now, again, it's dead even. But Mm -hmm. if you'd only looked at that list, you would have said, oh, all we have to do is talk about crime and the economy. And you would have been missing this really important thing to these women. Look, I think it'll be fascinating to see what happens in Virginia. I think it'll be fascinating to see what happens in Ohio with her ballot initiative. That will be a big tell as to kind of what's going on. But I think as far as 2024 goes, I think the women voters are going to be very, very critical, very suspect, late Mm -hmm. deciders. And I really hope candidates are listening and not just talking at them. Yeah. Because frankly, nobody likes to be talked. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Yeah. So to conclude our conversation, do you think that your being a woman influenced this decision to focus on women? Or do you think it would have happened regardless of your gender? I think focusing on women voters came naturally to me because I'm a woman. That said, it's a really fascinating group of voters. So I think that I would have been drawn to it anyway. Yeah. I know some men that are fantastic at figuring out how to message to women. But one thing that I often say, I don't think I'm an expert in women voters because I'm a woman. 
that is not what qualifies me for this. Right, right. It's hundreds of hours of watching focus groups. It's deep dive in how do women make decisions. It's understanding what's influencing them. It's trying new things like the follow-up from a focus group to see if they change their positions. Mm-hmm. All of that was a lot of hands-on learning, right. which has allowed me to understand this group of women very well. I don't think it's just because I'm a woman. Right, right. Got to do the research. We do the homework. Yep, exactly. (laughs) Well, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a fascinating conversation. Yeah, this has been delightful. Thank you. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening and join us next time. This Smart Women, Smart Power episode is supported by Tallis.